This episode is brought to you by Kia's first three-row all-electric SUV, the Kia EV9. With available all-wheel drive and seating for up to seven adults. With zero to 60 speed that thrills you one minute. And available lounge seats that unwind you the next. Visit kia.com slash EV9 to learn more. Ask your Kia dealer for availability. No system, no matter how advanced, can compensate for all driver error and or driving conditions. Always drive safely. I'm Lorraine Sommerfeld. Welcome to Season 2 of the Driving Podcast. I want to thank you for joining us. Our goal, as always, is to make sure that you as a consumer have the best information as you make decisions about buying and maintaining a vehicle. We're kicking off this season with one of my favorite topics, Ask a Mechanic. My favorite technician, Chris Muir, is back in the hot seat. Chris is a seasoned mechanic with many years on the tools at both the dealer and independent level. He's also a consultant and professor at Centennial College, training the next generation of technicians. Today we have a lot of ground to cover. What do you need to know about maintaining an electric vehicle? What impact are part shortages having on our car repairs? With prices at all-time highs, how do you know whether to do that expensive fix or sell your car? All this and much, much more on The Driving Podcast. Welcome, Chris. Great to have you back. It's a pleasure to be back. A lot has changed in the world, again, that few of us could have predicted, and it's had a huge impact on the entire car industry. Let's unpack it, shall we? Absolutely. I'm here for it. Electric vehicles. The sales are finally started to take off as the cost of fuel pushed a lot of people off the fence. Now, what I'm wondering is, I know you have an EV, so I'm really thrilled that you've got firsthand experience with this as well as professional. Who are these cars for? Is it changing? Has there been enough um, advancement that more people can be considering these and have it fit into their life? Yeah, I, there's definitely been that advancement. Um, that was my opposition to the electric car early on. And I mean, I had opposition to electric cars. I've written articles about it. I, I was quite vocal that, ah, oh, this can't be the future. And yet here I am, it's the future. These cars are, there's pretty much one for every niche at this point. You can get entry-level cars that are very well appointed uh, right up to, I mean, we're seeing, you know, $120,000, $140,000 electric pickup trucks now. They really do fit into your everyday life. And uh, depending on who you are, they may be worth it for you. We watched um, Ford bring out the Lightning and the Rivian has come out and GM has announced the Silverado will be out, I think, next year. North American audiences, they these buyers want big, big pickup trucks still. And so the manufacturers are delivering them. I equate electric vehicles with there's supposed to be a return to something more eco-friendly. So when I see these giant pickup trucks, it's a little bit confusing. Um, why do you think that is? And what what's the application for these massive, very heavy vehicles? So the application for these massive, very heavy vehicles is pretty much vanity, <laughs> straight at, straight up. <laughs> uh, it's, there is not a viable excuse for a Hummer uh, really in the world. Okay, it can tow a house. Great. You tow a house a lot with your, you know, $200,000 Hummer? 
Probably not, right? I, I think they're looking at some of the pickup trucks could be replaceable, like on construction sites. Like there are people that need pickup trucks. I, I understand that. Do you think we're going to see those people buying them though? I think there's going to be a real reluctance in that core demographic that we're talking about, tradesmen, people that need these trucks in severe uh, usage situations. There's going to be a reluctance to use something like that in a severe usage situation. Um, could they use them? Absolutely, they could. Yeah, an entry-level work truck would be, a, I think, a really great idea, or even a small pickup truck, something like the Maverick, but electrified would be the niche that we need. Um, again, looking at the, the Ford Lightning, it's a beautiful truck, but it's one hundred dollars or $140,000. I'm not throwing a two-by-four in the back of that truck. Uh, it's kind of sacrilegious to me at this point. What's happening with uh, the range anxiety, which we've been talking about for 15 years? Have we overcome that to a certain point? You, you have everyday experience with an electric vehicle. What are you, what are you experiencing? So range anxiety can still be a thing, especially when we road trip with the, the EV. We've put 52,000 kilometers on our EV in a year. In day-to-day -day usage, the range anxiety isn't there. We can charge it at home overnight. We get into it with a full tank. And in the summertime, I, I'm using quotey fingers on tank, a full battery. Uh, and in summertime, we're seeing 400 kilometers worth of range uh, out of that vehicle. And in the winter time, we're seeing somewhere around 300 kilometers worth of range. The range fluctuates based on the tires that are on it, the temperature that it is outside. But after 400 kilometers in a vehicle, even road tripping it, we can usually find a charger fairly easily, a fast charger. And four hours in a car with the kids, I want out of the car now. Uh, so, so road tripping with these and using them for everyday commuting uh, has proven to be pretty good. Older stuff where you get 100 kilometers out of it, range anxiety is going to be a real thing. You start getting around the bottom and you're going, oh, where am I going to charge? Where am I going to charge? Sure. The new ones, the bigger ones that are doing six and 700 kilometers, range anxiety becomes even less of an issue. And as infrastructure improves, that range anxiety is going to decrease. Okay. Now, if someone is looking at purchasing an electric vehicle and it's the first time, can you go over some of the differences in maintaining that vehicle as opposed to what they're probably used to with a gas engine? Probably the biggest appeal to an electric vehicle is the actual cost of ownership. Uh, and that's what a lot of people, they look at the price of a $40,000 entry-level car and they go, oh my God, I can buy this gas car over here for 20 grand. The first thing that you're going to notice is the cost to fuel these vehicles is significantly less. We're spending about $80 a month in electricity in order to fuel our Bolt. Um, compare that to the micro that I had up until recently, where every two days traveling into the city, I'd have to put $80 worth of fuel into it. Well, that's two days versus an entire month worth of use. Um, on top of that, the bells and whistles that I got with the Bolt, I got heated seats and air conditioning and all this for that 40 thousand dollar package and I'm comfortable, and the gasoline has now paid for that vehicle. On top of the savings of gasoline, the other uptick for the Bolt, I don't have to do an oil change on that car at all. The Micro, with the commuting that I was doing, once a month I was into my Nissan dealer spending another $80 on a synthetic oil change because everything that's fuel efficient is running on expensive synthetic oil now. So 
between the fuel savings and the month-to-month -month maintenance costs, the EV at this point made sense to me financially. Uh, if you don't drive very much and you're six months between oil changes and a tank of fuel once a month, making that jump doesn't really make sense until you need a new car. Uh, that's kind of my, my take on that whole thing. I was talking to somebody who sells EVs and they said it's the first time that people were actually considering the fact that the amount that fuel was going to cost them because of where it is now was hundreds of dollars a month, which they could apply to the cost of buying the EV. And the gap has narrowed significantly between those two numbers and people that were on the fence have fallen off the fence basically. Well, and that's, that's where we are when we bought our first EV, we bought our first EV in 2019 uh, and it was one of those things where we had just had a car lost due to a rear end collision and we were looking at replacements for that vehicle and we could afford a Micra and the fuel, or we could afford a Bolt and the electricity. And the difference in, again, creature comfort, size of the vehicle, um, and month to month operation costs, it made more sense to make that electric switch. Like I said, I was a reluctant uh, adopter of electric technologies. I was trained on the first generation of LEAF, and it didn't impress me very much. But it was that difference in the fuel costs that drove us into something a little bit nicer, truthfully, because we could put the money into the payment instead of into the tank and ultimately burn it into nothing. And that's what fuel costs have given us now. It's made that switch a little easier, I think, for a lot of people. Talk to me about tires, because there's a very different thing you have to consider in EVs when it comes to the tires. Yeah, the tires that are come equipped on an EV are ultra-low rolling resistance tires, meaning that they've got less friction and less grip. However, they are a stronger tire than a conventional passenger car tire. They've got a little bit more enforcement in the sidewall to hold the fat electric vehicle up off the ground. Electric vehicles have a battery pack jammed underneath them. And if you've ever tried to lift a battery, you'll understand that even a little one's really heavy. One that can go three or 400 kilometers is extremely heavy. So these cars have got a tremendous amount of low slung weight. It does a couple things. It makes them handle really, really well, but it also makes them harder to accelerate and harder to stop. So there's more energy output and input uh, when you're moving them. Uh, because they're heavier, they need a, thick, or a stronger tire to hold them up off the ground. The ultra-low rolling resistance is brought to you by less friction between the car and the ground. So wet days, we'll notice that we don't have the traction that maybe we would like from them. Uh, and because of the weight of the car, they tend to wear out just a little bit quicker than we'd like. Could you put a conventional passenger tire on the car? Sure, you got to check the weight rating at each corner, but you are going to see a marked decrease in your range. We put winter tires on our vehicle, and we see a very marked uh, decrease in range, probably in the 50-kilometer neighborhood from going from summers to winters. For you Ford F-150 Lightning owners, if you decide that you're going to put an aggressive set of off-road tires on it, expect to see a gigantic decrease in range on the vehicle uh, just because the, the tires are consuming that much more energy. I know for a lot of people, there's been a little concern about how long the batteries will last in an EV, and we've seen you know, the infancy of this tech coming along, coming along, and it's changing very quickly. There's an all EV company called VinFast out of Vietnam. And what they announced a few months ago was you can buy their car. I think they have two models, another one coming, but they lease you the battery. 
And I think they did that to give buyers peace of mind and to kind of keep a tether on the battery so they could get it back if something went, you know, astray and put a new one in for you. What do you think of the idea of dividing a car up almost and owning part of it and leasing part of it? Oh, oh okay. Whole, now I know what you think. Oh, the whole <laughs> idea of, of leasing a part of your car, but not the whole car uh, or a monthly user fee. I, it gives me instant near flashbacks of BMW's heated seats, subscription services and cars. I don't want to lease a gas tank. I want to buy the gas tank with the vehicle. I want to own the battery. Is there a possibility that there could be a fault in the battery? Yes, but they're usually discovered fairly early on. And manufacturers have really comprehensive warranties on the batteries. We're talking 10 years or 180,000 kilometers is kind of your low end warranty on the batteries. Um, Battery technology in the last 10 years has marched on incredibly fast. It won't be the same tomorrow as it is today. Um, what we saw 10 years ago, and this is what we're, we're basing our reliability on, is we're looking at, you know, 2000 and, oh, geez, even more than 10 years ago, 2007, 2008 Nissan Leafs, where they had the first battery, the, the kind of the first electrified main market vehicle a non-climate controlled uh, battery that probably wasn't monitored well enough. And it had a shelf life of, uh, let's call it five to seven years, really where, where you get what you want out of it. Now we're looking at the future and we've got batteries that will give you 10 years of reliable daily usage without much of a thought. At the 10 year mark with a vehicle, you're starting to assess, am I going to keep this vehicle anyways? So you've run the battery for 10 years. You've got a little bit of degradation. Is it enough to replace the battery? That, that's ultimately going to be uh, up to the end user. Um, there may be recycling programs in effect. That's speculative. Uh, as far as, you know, take one out, put one in, core charging, if you will. But you have to remember what you haven't spent on that vehicle over the 10 years. Does it justify the degrada degradation on the battery? And is the battery of today going to be that bad from 10, 10 years from now. I don't think you're going to see a reduction in service uh, capacity over that 10-year span with the new battery technology. We're looking at climate controlled. We're looking at cell monitoring. We're looking at a whole bunch of new technology, and it's only going to get better. It's something that's really exciting in automotive. You know, we played with gasoline for 100 years, and we pretty much perfected it. Now we're playing with batteries, and we're just in its infancy. Um, I don't think that you need to lease a battery. I really don't like that pay-per-use model. I want a car, and if I want to buy it outright, I want all of it. Okay, you talked about advanced tech, so I need to ask you this next question. I'm getting more mail from people with glitchy screens or some part of the car giving up something and then another part shuts down, and I'm reminding them that we're, we're, we're driving computers, basically, on wheels. And just the way your laptop can blue screen and your phone can mess up, we're seeing things in cars that are glitching or shutting down. And it's a whole new frontier in a lot of cases. And so people are understandably getting a little jumpy. We've Are we, are we going to see an increase in, I don't want to say lemons because that's, um, I don't like that term necessarily. And Canada doesn't have very good laws to deal with it, but that's a whole nother show. Um, are we going to see increasingly some problems because manufacturers are pushing stuff out too soon? 
So we are all about the pop and sizzle right now. We are an instant gratification uh, society. Manufacturers are bringing their, their best and brightest to the forefront and maybe not doing due diligence when it comes to testing and ensuring that the system is going to work over the long term. Uh, we're also seeing a lot of integrated systems. Uh, we, we've talked before on, on the giant computer screens in the middle of the car that control the everything. You, if you lose a center stack screen on some of these cars, you're losing your climate control, your radio, your navigation, your it may be multiplexed into uh, the ignition system, the cluster, right? Losing a small piece of the car now has giant repercussions, um, which is driving down the reliability of the vehicle. Your iPad is great, but most people only use an iPad for a year or two. You put the iPad in the center of the car as the opulent center stack, uh, and the iPad fails after two years. Well, now you are um, committed to buying this very expensive piece of technology, probably from the dealer, and having them install and program it in order to get the functionality of your vehicle back. I don't think we're seeing more failures. I think we're seeing more severe failures of that technology. There's something to be said about a mechanical button that just makes the windows go up and down instead of having it all in the center of your vehicle. Yeah, a lot of this, I sound like my uh, late father, he wouldn't even get power windows because he said one more thing to break. And now <laughs> 40 years on, I sound just like him and my kids laugh at me. But um, anyway, we're going to take a quick break and we'll be back with Chris Muir. I'm Lorraine Summerfeld. This is The Driving Podcast. This is The Driving Podcast. I'm Lorraine Sommerfeld. I'm joined by Chris Muir today in our Ask the Mechanics segment. Chris, we've, talk, we've been talking about shortages because they're across the industry. It's not news to anybody, and these semiconductor chips are not, not powering everything almost that it seems our entire economy and lifestyles run on. I, I want to know, though, for people taking their car in to get fixed, how are these shortages impacting those of us who already own vehicles, not just ones looking for a new one? Oh boy. So uh, this is a pretty good one. This one hit pretty close to home early on in the whole shortage uh, chain. Uh, I had a 2019 Bolt. That was the first one that we bought. Uh, and I upgraded it last year to a 2022 Bolt before the, the recall grounded all of them. I got the mine like a week before they shut it down. Anyways, uh, the reason I traded in the 2019 Bolt is I had a semiconductive uh, battery isolator that I couldn't get a new one of in a reasonable amount of time. I think I was in a rental for about four months before I went, you know what, I'm spending more on gas than it would cost me to upgrade to this new fancier SUV version of my electric car. Uh, I'm going to trade up. So four months in a rental for a part that they couldn't get is not unheard of. My wife actually works for the competitor, right, uh, Ford, and she's got vehicles that have been downed on her lot for eight, 10 months where the customer's in a rental and it's just waiting for a computer or a little fiddly part that makes the vehicle safe or usable or whatnot, what have you. We're seeing more severe part shortages when it comes to electronics, but that's not the entire story. We're also seeing shortages of, of again, fiddly little bits that come from uh, factory overseas or uh, things that have been delayed through shipping or one manufacturer for a multitude of outlets. So one manufacturer might make a ball joint for 
Ford, as well as Moog, as well as Dorman, all of these aftermarket suppliers, they just rebrand it. And if that manufacturer is shut down, well, all of a sudden that destroys the entire parts chain. Um, we're seeing it in everything, but at a dealer level, it's far, far worse. Aftermarket, eh, there's a few items that are hard to get a hold of, but it's not as severe. What you should expect as a customer is not to be surprised if they say, hey, we're going to put you in a rental or a loaner or we can't get that part. Okay, that's the information I want people to have. Don't anticipate almost anything because there's a lot of stuff that's going sideways right now and it's still doing that. Yeah, and it's it's definitely not a conspiracy at the dealer level. You know, it's yeah. it's not, ooh, they're trying to screw me over because they don't like me. No, no, no. They, they're so frustrated at a dealer level trying to get stuff from the manufacturers as well. It's just, it is a nightmare through the entire chain trying to get anything. Okay, I'm going to swerve out for a second. Quick question. I have a reader who is a, a young guy that likes old cars. He's wondering in a pre-80s, what kind of oil should he be using? So, uh, even if it's an old oil burner that loves dino juice and kind of spills it everywhere, just put conventional, regular dino juice in it. Um, if it's a nice engine, something that you're trying to keep, it doesn't have any issues, doesn't burn oil, doesn't leak, run a synthetic with, uh, you know, an additive for uh, higher zinc. They took zinc out of engine oil a while ago. Old flat tappet engines need that little bit of metallic zinc in it. It acts as a lubricant between the uh, lifter and the camshaft itself. It prevents things from wearing out. So you may need an additive on top of your synthetic. But if you like the engine, the synthetic is only going to do it good. It doesn't break down as easily as conventional. Put it in the old stuff. They'll love the new stuff. I'll tell him to spoil his car that's almost as old as I am. Okay. <laughs> when we we're talking about shortages, it's changed the market for used cars and new cars. And the prices of used cars have just skyrocketed. And when we used to do the TV show together, people would call in and say they'd been given a quote for, you know, $1,500 for a repair. And we used to tell them, you'd say, you know, what is it? What's the mileage? And we could tell them basically on the spot whether it was used you know, worthwhile doing this huge repair or not. All bets are off now. All that has changed. I had a woman write to me. She had a 2010 CRV and the air conditioning went and she goes, I don't know what to do. They told me it's, you know, $1,500 for reconditioned and is it worth it? And for the first time I'm going, wait, you need to think about this for a sec because back in the day, I'll let you take this from here, but that sweet spot has definitely shifted. Yeah, I remember the email and, and you know, at the start of the, our uh, correspondence between each other, you were, you were thinking of the old school way where this is a slam dunk, just throw the thing out and buy another used one for 1500 bucks, like you could just two or three years ago. And it's not the way it is anymore. Uh, we looked up uh, CRVs and, you know, kind of that 10 year old CRV was worth over 10 grand. Now this $1,500 to fix up your used car. It's not not what it used to be. Um, the used market is absolutely upside down, insane. Uh, prices are through the roof, and I think a lot of it's got to do with uh, new car supply. If you drive by any new car lot, there's nothing there. And it doesn't matter what manufacturer, most of the car lots don't have a lot of new stock or a lot of used stock, and it's driving the prices through the roof. So bring us back to the repair question. You've got a 10-year-old car now. 
do you put $1,500 into the AC? And it's not a slam dunk, yeah, because you can't replace it. How good is the car? Is it structurally sound? Is there a big repair job coming up? Is it mechanically sound? Does the engine work? Does the transmission shift? You've got to look at all of this stuff. And by putting $1,500 into this car, is it better than investing a whole bunch of money into a new car? Or are you throwing good money after bad? It has really changed that, that kind of sure shot. Hey, this car is not worth it anymore. Now you've got to look at what that car is worth. Okay, this this was an air conditioning question, so I'm just going to ask you to go off course a little bit because an air conditioning repair is one of the most frustrating repairs, I swear, um, that people – I've gone through it. People bring it to me. Can you just briefly explain why an air conditioning system is so complex? So an air conditioning system is your refrigerator that is powered by an engine on a set of wheels. So your refrigerator, if you think about it, sits in your house, it's all climate controlled, and there's a little electric motor that runs a compressor that shoves the refrigerant around the system. In a car, you've got an engine that's running the compressor that's activated by a magnet, because the engine doesn't shut on and off to activate the compressor. Instead, we activate a clutch that drives the compressor. On the inside of that compressor, we're moving a gas, a refrigerant. There is a lubricant uh, airborne inside of that refrigerant as well for the compressor. That goes through to an item called a condenser. The gas gets turned into a liquid, goes from the condenser through a thermal expansion valve or an orifice into the vehicle, into the evaporator core where it turns from a liquid to a gas. When it makes that transformation from liquid to gas, it robs heat or it takes heat from the car. That's where you get that cold air from. And then it's pumped back through a receiver dryer, back into the compressor, and the whole thing starts over again. Um, if you have a failure in the AC system, it's usually a leak. Usually, not always. That leak uh, lets the refrigerant out, and it lets air into the AC system. When the air hits the uh, lubricant or the refrigerant, it can become mildly acidic, depending on the amount of moisture in it which can rot certain sections, as well as it can saturate the receiver dryer so it can't do its job properly, which is to uh, keep the compressor dry. Um, on top of all that, the condenser sits out in front of the vehicle. It's first to get hit by stones. It's really easy to pierce it. As soon as the gas is out, of course, uh, your car goes warm. And as mechanics, we're not supposed to just recharge the system. We're supposed to find where the leak is. So that's number one. Number two, or the next up, when we're looking for a leak, we usually overpressurize the system with nitrogen in order to make the leak bigger so we can find it. Then we open up the system and disturb everything when we're making a repair, seal it back up, put it into a vacuum, and then charge it back to its regular levels of refrigerant. If we have a catastrophic failure with the compressor, it can send debris all the way through the system. Uh, meaning that if you don't put a screen on that system or replace the system in its entirety, you can get chunks of the old compressor entering the new compressor and blowing it to smithereens as well. Clogging orifices, all kinds of stuff can happen uh, if you've had a catastrophic compressor failure. Most of the time we'd recommend replacing the entire system, which can be just a silly amount of, of spending. Uh, I had one old Sentra back 10 years ago when it was brand new, uh, in my service bay at Nissan, the compressor fell apart. Nissan decided that they put an entire AC system in it. 
And I think the bill for it was somewhere in the neighborhood of seven or eight thousand dollars that we submitted back to Nissan. We had to take the dashboard out to get the evaporator. We had to take the front end off the car to get the condenser on top of all the lines that ran under the cowl, the compressor, all kinds of, of bits and pieces. And the labor for it was not cheap. On top of all this, they're delicate systems. And if one part has rotted away, there's a good chance that recharging this system is going to find another leak for you. That's where people end up running back to their tech going, you fixed it, and a week later it's not working again. And that's because every part of the system is the same age. So if one has handed itself up, there's a good chance another one is primed to go. And that's why it's so frustrating to try and fix AC systems. That's right. And in our diagnosis, we're a bit intrusive when we try and get into an AC system. And like I said, overcharge, overstress some components. And, yeah, we can see um, – failures on on stuff that was borderline afterwards okay chris i got one final question for you it's we're doing this in the summer even though the price of gas is high a lot of people have been cooped up they're back doing road trips a lot of people are heading out what's something we we tell them to prep their car before they go to have it you know get a once over so they're safe on the road get caa all that stuff however if you're driving across the country what what are some things people should be doing from a car perspective that they may not be thinking about so from a car perspective, you're going for a destination vacation. You're going to relax on the beach or go to a spa. Treat your car to the same thing when you get to your destination. If you think about it, if we drive from here to Vancouver, we've put 5,000 kilometers on the car in and about. It's time for an oil change anyways. If you've driven from here to Vancouver, you've probably got your kids in the car, which adds weight. You've probably got a camper trailer or stuff on the roof, which is added that stress to the vehicle. So this vehicle has now worked harder than it has in its entire life. When you get there, give it an oil change and have someone give the car just a quick once over. Make sure you don't have a wonky tire. Make sure that the uh, ball joints are still tight. Make sure that there's nothing falling off. So you can make your return trip with no stress and no, no um, interruptions, let's say. Uh, take your car when you get there. Don't just go to a Mr. Jiffy Captain Luby Co., right? <laughs> They're not a trained eye. You want to take it into a dealer or if you have family in the area and they have a trusted mechanic, take it into that trusted mechanic and have them go over the car before you make your return trip home. When you get home, give it another oil change. So, you know, kind of that three oil change rule for a really long road trip is, is key. I think that's great advice. And I, if one person hears this and it saves them and gets them home safely, then that's worth worth having listened to. Thank you so much, Chris. I'd like to also thank our listeners for tuning in to the Driving Podcast. Be sure to subscribe to this and other great driving.ca podcasts on iTunes, Spotify, or your favorite apps. I'm Lorraine Sommerfeld. We'll be back next time. <laughs>